This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. And today... I'm bringing an industry veteran with a wealth of experience in workers' compensation onto the podcast to talk about that wealth of experience in workers' compensation. Our guest today is Mr. Doug Averin. What's going on, Doug? David, how are you, my man? I'm good. I'm good. And I will tell everybody, Doug got to me because Eric Hall from Rough Notes and Sean Walker from, um, oh, what's the name of his group? Premier Group. Yeah, Premier Group. That's right. Uh, The aggregator that's tied in with uh, Insurance Soup and and a lot of other people reached out and said, David, you need to talk to this guy. And apparently they had told him the same thing. So we jumped on a call last week and got towards the end of our conversation. And I'm like, man, we really should just have you come on the podcast and have this conversation because it's a lot of really good information that I think people can learn from and use and based on his experience of leading and developing teams makes all the sense in the world. So why don't we start out, Doug, just sort of give everybody the overview of your background and maybe how you got into the insurance industry. And then, you know, you left for a little while and now you're heading back in. So so talk a little bit about your journey. David, I appreciate the chance to talk to you and to, to all the viewers here of the podcast. Um, the truth is, when I started in this business, I didn't even know how to read my own personal auto policy. I knew nothing about it. I knew that I was a college graduate and uh, wanted a good job. And somebody suggested go try insurance. They sort of undersold it as a good job. This has been a great career for me. It's been a lot of fun. And over the last few years that I stepped away from it, the truth is I regret that because this is a really fun place. It's where I'm meant to be. Uh, and I'm happy to be back. So I started as a commercial casualty lines trainee with the Kemper back in the day when these big carriers would hire these huge training classes and they'd have people all over the country and they'd bring them into their home office for a lot of classroom. And they really invested a lot of money, a lot of time on those people. And, uh, and I became a, an underwriter trainee and worked my way up in a few years to senior underwriter with Kemper. Um, But I got recruited away and 
though I'm a pretty loyal guy, uh, one of the things that was kind of troubling me was I wasn't able to do my own marketing. Back in those days, you had to go out with a marketing rep, and I was the underwriter, just the underwriter. Now, today, of course, we've transitioned to very much of a um, production underwriter environment, so those kind of skills are good, and people who get into underwriting typically end up with some type of marketing experience. But my next role after a few years was I was recruited away by the old Fireman's Fund, and at that point, I specialized in workers' compensation, got to do my own marketing still had that title of senior underwriter. I had done workers' comp, but I didn't specialize it until that role. And I found that I just really loved that line of coverage. Um, and a couple of years later, was hired away to be a lead underwriter and then ultimately was asked to take a promotion and move my wife and I to Chicago and take over the uh, workers' comp unit, the lead of the workers' comp unit in Chicago for Cigna, PNC which now they're known strictly as a healthcare company, but back then they did a lot of property and casualty. And so for a couple of years, I got cut my teeth on, on leadership, which was, I found out was really what I was meant to do is lead people, develop people. It's really watching them grow, become more than they thought they could be, shine where they can shine, and then steer them off the path when they're headed for trouble before they get to trouble. And I really found that I enjoy it. And so we ended up in Chicago. I loved doing it. I was then recruited away by a specialty workers' compensation company called RTW. It stands for Return to Work, but they had a very different model about how they approach workers' compensation. Uh, they moved me back to Denver, Colorado, which is where I was from. And I worked for that company uh, and the parent company who ultimately bought us and moved, uh, moved me up to the parent company as well. I worked for that company for 20 years. And it's there that I really developed as a leader. It's there I developed in my knowledge of workers' compensation, what it means and how it impacts companies and their bottom line, but also how it impacts the workers themselves, the injured workers. And so I kind of even further fell in love with the business. Now, David, the short time I was with the, uh, the parent company, um, State Auto at the time, um, I worked more in affinity space and in commercial lines, sales and marketing, developing trainings and things of that nature. Uh, but that's where I made the mistake after a couple of years of that. I decided to join some people that I knew, took the opportunity to go into the entrepreneurial space and not in an insurance entrepreneurial space, which if I was going to do that, that would have made the most sense probably. Um, I've spent the last four years working for myself and my partners and doing some things and it's gone okay. It hasn't gone poorly, it hasn't gone great. But what I will tell you is I haven't been me. And my wife would definitely tell you I haven't been me. So it was at her urging and her wise uh, advice that said, go back to what you love. Go do what you know and what you love. And so here I am, I'm back entering the commercial insurance industry maybe on the workers' comp side, which is where I have the most of my knowledge from a technical ability, but definitely on some kind of leadership side where I can develop people. And then really, here's the other key. Producers are the customer for insurance carriers. I speak from a carrier perspective. That's my career. But that producer experience will determine whether or not you get to see the best of the best business how often you get to see that business, it makes a difference in the bottom line for your company, but it also makes a difference in your 
work enjoyment, those relationships that you form over time. Fortunately for me, I've developed a lot of those. Uh, my authentic, my authenticity has has paid dividends. I have a lot of people willing to speak on my behalf today. But but all of those elements of the job, the technical side, the people development and leadership, and then the customer experience and relationships I built on the producer side. That's why I'm back. It's really what I missed. So you said you sort of fell in love with workers comp. Why? Workers comp's got a horrible personality. Why would you? <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, why in the world would um, workers comp when there's so many other options out there? What attracted you specifically? That's a that's a terrific question, and it's kind of funny too because when I started in this business, my first carrier, I'm a green underwriter as enthusiastic as could be, and I'm sitting across from a producer. And he says, okay, Doug, why Kemper? That's where I worked at the time. And I said, David, I said, with the greatest enthusiasm of a green little rookie could say, because we've got great claims and loss control. Well, four and a half years later, I got recruited away from Fireman's by Fireman's Fund. I'm sitting in front of that same producer. And he says, okay, Doug, why Fireman's Fund? And at that point, I realized the product was very similar. And I said, with a lot less enthusiasm, because we've got great claims and loss control. When I ended up at my third carrier in workers' comp, that same producer asked that question again. The answer had to change, David. The answer became because you get me, because I'm going to give you great service. I'm going to tell you very quickly when I'm not able to do it, exactly why I'm not able to do it. And I'm going to recommend a market to you that's great at these. So hopefully you keep that customer for yourself. But in that time, I ended up at the very fourth carrier, the fourth carrier and the one that moved me from Chicago back to the Denver, Colorado area. And it was specialty workers comp. And it was there that I learned the business. And I learned the why on the insured side, why it matters. And I learned the why on the injured worker side about why it matters. And there weren't enough carriers in the industry that were identifying those things for their customers. They just weren't. If you could do that, I thought, well, number one, your producer contacts can win more often. They can write new business. You can teach them about this and what's different about the product and why it matters, whether we're the ones on it or not. Um, but even better, we then as a carrier could write more business and do more things too. And so I we specialize in bringing experience mods down. A lot of people claim to do that, and some do. The largest mod we ever wrote when I was there was a 315. Um, and in four years, not even uh, in four years, that account had a 0.88 mod. That's real savings. That's real money that that business could invest in other things. And as I'd like to say out in front of those customers when I would be out selling alongside the producer, how many widgets at your profit margin? Are you having to make extra just to pay that extra amount in your mod? So here's two things I'm going to say, because those are straight out of my playbook. So number one, you know, when we go in and we, it's not, we don't deal with just the mod. We try and calculate total cost risk as long as we have enough information of to course. be able to do that. But I do the exact same thing, except I don't do the, how many widgets do you have to sell? I take an assumed revenue amount and an assumed profit margin because many times we're not at a stage where we're going to market yet. And I don't want to, you know, people get weird when you ask for numbers too early and I don't want to put them into a position where um, they're going to boot me out because I get too nosy too quick. 
there's enough data at our fingertips these days. You can get pretty close. And I've always said that if you're smart and you're going to do this, you'll go in and you'll overestimate the amount of revenue and you'll overestimate the profit margin because if they're not hitting those numbers, then they know their problems that much work. Um, and right. if they are, they can do the math and I try and keep it at round numbers. But I want to show them how many days they have to work at an assumed profit margin based on their revenue to just overcome the total cost of risk that they've created in their organization. Um, you know, that's that's number one. I want to be able to show them that. But um, in addition to going in and calculating the total cost of risk to show them them that piece, you know, we want to we want to make sure that we have a really good handle on the operations of these accounts because so many times producers go in and it's literally just get the payrolls by class code or let me see the deck pages, your existing policy or whatever else. And they've never touched and felt the account. They have no idea. You know, I've said it a few times on the podcast and a lot more not on the podcast, but the fact of the matter is if you're a risk management consultant or a loss control representative or an insurance producer, whatever your role is in the grand scheme of things in that account, you can learn a lot more smoking a cigarette with the receiving clerk on the loading dock than you're ever going to learn in the conference room. And I don't smoke, so I'll throw that out there. But you know, we get so caught up in the process and the premium because why? That does the third thing. It pays us. Whereas we really need to be focusing on solving problems because that's the way that you're going to ultimately bring the experience mod down and gain a client for life. Anybody can go in and be a one-hit wonder. Our entire industry is made up, not our entire industry, but our, our industry is made up of people who are going to tell people what they want to hear to get the account placed this year, completely screwing themselves at renewal. So. Yeah. No question. I, I say this because I'm sure in your experience and with the, the different carriers you've worked with and the size and the shape of the account that you've seen, what are some mistakes that you've seen producers make relative to approaching workers' comp that you think would benefit the audience? Well, that's that's a great question. One of them you've already spoken about, and that is speaking to that client about total cost of risk as opposed to the price of the premium because they may get a lower premium, it's gonna cost them a whole lot more in the long run if they don't approach it the right way. And let's face it, getting into a new risk as a producer is not always easy. Sometimes it takes multiple tries. And the truth is on the customer side, listen, as a producer, you're trying to sell them something they already have and people hate to fire people. And you're asking them to fire their current agent. You better have a compelling story when you do that. And the number one date for commercial insurance for renewals is 1-1. That means you're asking them to fire their guy at Christmas time. Are you kidding? Right? That's a tough sell for a producer. So the producers that really want to know their business, as opposed to a simple transactional, let's blow and go and not provide that customer experience for their client or provide the value they deserve. That's a huge challenge. And frankly, it's not the right producer for that, that I should be working with in, the, in that regard. And so over the last 20 years, the insureds have gotten smarter about workers' comp. They've heard it enough that said, you better, you need to have some safety program in there. You need to have a return to work program. Now, how uh, uh, rigorous that program is, is all over the board, but they know they need something. 
And one of the challenges that producers face when they go in is to, even if they're doing it all wrong, it's hard to walk in there and tell somebody they're doing everything wrong. One of the key words I've actually found that has helped me to get my message heard is to acknowledge the things they're doing and then the, the language matters. And so I, I've been, used the word enhance a lot in my presentation style and my interactions with customers is, listen, you've started these things in place. We're here to enhance what you've already done and take it to another level for you. And we're going to show you how that total cost is going to impact you. And again, back to that message. What could you do with that extra money? What could you not do with that extra money? Um, when somebody, let's say their safety program isn't up to speed, David, when somebody's injured, well, that person just came off the line or off of wherever. That work is either going to get picked up by the other people around them, which means more work than they were designed to do, more chance of someone else getting injured, or they're going to have to go find a temporary employee or that slot's going to sit vacant. Well, there's a cost associated with all those that has nothing to do with premium. That's part of the cost of risk. If somebody's off work for a very, very long time and all of a sudden the indemnity is going up when it didn't have to be that way, maybe they didn't have to get injured or maybe they did get injured and it was a legitimate injury and well, they didn't have to be gone that long. You need to understand that piece of it. And then there's a piece here that's really, that, that very few people in our industry understand. So producers, carriers, we tend to talk to insurers in our total cost of risk discussions about why we should bring down the mod and it will help them and they'll save costs and why we should put a, a safety program into place and it'll bring down costs and why you should even have return to work and it'll bring down costs. Part of what's missing in that from a lot of folks in our industry is there's an injured worker on the other end of that. And they need to be handheld and guided and directed through this process. The best risks from a producer perspective and from a carrier perspective are those that really value their employees. Well, if you really value your employee, it means it's probably going to be a safer risk. If you really value your employees, the post-claim is critical to what happens in that employee's life. There are statistics out there that says once an injured worker is off work for just 12 weeks, there's only a 50-50 chance they will ever go back to meaningful duty. And why? Because now they've potentially become addicted to the, to the narcotics. There is a significantly increased um, chance of depression. And that leads to marital issues, issues at home, problems. Their lives fall apart because they've been sitting at home focused on their pain. Well, Mr. Insured, if you love your employees, if you really value them, then you want to do everything you can to get them back to work, even if it's something they resist, because you're doing it for them. You know you're helping to save their life in a way of what they've become accustomed to. And that's part of the, the total cost of risk and part of why I fell in love with this business is before, because this really matters for a lot of people in the chain. Yeah. So manufacturing specifically, I think there's other things that people don't necessarily contemplate when or or tie it to workers comp. But I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, I. Um, I've represented a couple accounts over the years that have some highly specialized equipment for the manufacturing 
process of what they manufacture. And it's not that you can always get somebody who knows, like a lot of printing presses, for example, come from Germany and Italy. And there aren't people here that are qualified to fix them or can even get you the parts because they come from Germany and Italy. And I had an issue where an employee was injured because they bypassed the guarding on a piece of equipment. It did happen to be a printing press and it messed the press up for three to four weeks. You know, by the time you could coordinate getting somebody over from Europe and all of this other stuff. And immediately we're going to think to ourselves about the workers comp, you know, the return to work first is the employee. Okay. How bad is obviously all of those things. And then immediately go to the loss of income on the business income side. You know, what what happened if they weren't able to produce and blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of other things that tie into this too. And, you know, one of the ones that I bring up specific to people who are manufacturing their own product for uh, sale in retail is what happens if you can't ship product and you lose your shelf space? You're not going to get that back. No. And if you do, it's going to be at a premium. You know, so think about it. If you're, you know, say you're getting ready to release a book and the printing press gets messed up and you have a dedicated end cap in the book section of every Walmart in the country and you don't, your order doesn't hit. What happens, man? You can't. Yeah, the reputational cost is huge. You said you're going to be able to produce this. You can't produce it anymore. They're moving on to somebody else who can. And people don't realize that unsafe behaviors at work have further repercussions than just somebody getting hurt or you having a near miss. It affects other aspects of your operation as well, which is one of the reasons why we always want to know, we want to understand the jobs people are doing. When we go and bring a new account on the books, we want to know what each role in that organization is. And sort of how their day flows. What are they doing at this time, that time, everything else? And we do that for a few reasons. But one of the main reasons why is it helps us identify ways to implement return to work in a way that's going to benefit both that team member and the employer. And I can remember, you know, an, an example in people who listen to the podcast, I'm telling you this story, but they've probably heard this half dozen times before. You know, but we represent a large resort over in Orlando. And when I got involved with them, they had their mod was a 2.23. It was going to a 2.23 from like a 1.8 or 1.9 something. And it was really obvious that they did not have, they had return to work on paper, but they they did not have return to work. Looked at the loss runs, lots of low dollar indemnity claims from injuries where it just didn't make sense. It was obvious there was no return to work being implemented, no accountability to the program. So we wanted to understand the best way to go about fixing the problem. And so we interviewed the, the leadership and then we interviewed the supervisors over the main you know, engineering, housekeeping, front of house, all of that. Then we interviewed some of the main level employees and we found and by the way, there were no return to work jobs, right? There never are until you yeah, have the conversation. They, 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 they never up to us to help them. Yeah, yeah they, they don't know. And so if, if you go to your prospect people or your clients and you talk to them about return to work and then you get upset because they haven't implemented it, it's because they don't know how and they need your help. So there has to be more to the story than diagnosing the problem. You also need to give a treatment plan along with that. 
And so we talked with this, we talked with the front level people and we found that they would get to work in the morning. They would gather to get when they clocked in, they would gather together. They'd have a huddle at the clock and then they would immediately go and they would fill their amenity bags and they would refill their chemicals from the day before to restock them on their cart. And then they would start going out to clean the rooms. And I come from a retail background in specifically the grocery industry where you're begging people to buy a hundred dollars worth of groceries so you can make a dollar. And I'm thinking this is horribly inefficient and a waste. And so I asked the question, I said, just out of curiosity, how hard is it to refill chemicals? Well, it's not. They just need to go take their bottles to the main place where they can get the bulk chemical to put it into the bottle and then put it back on their cart. And they said, and what about amenity bags? And they said, well, the amenity bags are just, you know, that's essentially the shampoo, conditioner, hand cream, right. soap that we we put with a ribbon around it into uh, the rooms for our guests when they arrive. And I said, so is there a reason why we couldn't have someone who's released to come back and recover at work, fill the chemicals, if we have the stuff in close proximity and it fits inside their modified duty, and fill the amenity bags so that we're not wasting an hour at the onset of every shift doing this stuff. Because the issue that you have is that you're not getting enough rooms turned to where you can get to the right percentage every night to be profitable as a resort. So if we can get 12 different crews of people an extra hour, how many more rooms does that turn out that they are able to clean and you can subsequently rent so that you can have the correct amount of revenue that you need. And it was like, nobody ever thought about that. Nobody ever thought about having somebody sit at front of house at the restaurant and roll silverware. You know, there are all kinds of things that can be done. And so many times we don't take the time to sit down and prep and think through these things. And the one piece of advice, and I, I think we talked about this on our call when we were talking last week, but the one thing every single producer can and should be doing when they go on a new business appointment is reviewing that client's website. And I know everybody's going to say, I do that. What you don't do is you're not going to that website and looking to see what jobs they have available that you can possibly use modified duty people to come back and fill those roles until there's a permanent solution in place. David, you're, you're spot Yeah, on. we're not going to Indeed and looking for what they're advertising. And, you know, the story that I always tell is of the plumber that had a, an injured plumber come in. And I asked him, I said, talk to me about your return to work. We don't have that. And so, well, I don't understand. You got a lot of low dollar indemnity claims on your uh, loss runs, and it's costing you a lot of money not to have it. He said, we're contractors. We're old school. We don't have jobs counting paper clips. And I said, well, good. I said, Lucky for you, I went to your website before I came to the meeting today and I looked at your job posting board and I noticed that three years ago, you posted a job for your call center and it doesn't seem like it's ever been filled or taken down. Uh, can you let me know a little bit more about that? And he goes, well, what do you want to know? And I said, I want to know why injured plumbers that are released for light duty aren't filling the role in your call center that's been posted for three years. And I said a couple of things. Number one, these people are the face of your company every single day. They're the ones that are interacting with your clients in their homes. They're taking payment. They're, you know, they're making people feel reassured that they've done the job the right way. You know, and we're doing all of the things we need to do 
in that regard to put our best foot forward, how good do you think they would be as the first impression on the phone since you trust them in person? Yeah. And I said, and I hate to be sarcastic, but the other question is, how long do you think an injured plumber is going to sit in a call center before they miraculously recover and get back on the truck? They're going to help us get what we want from them by going back and not playing, uh, sitting on the fence as to whether or not they want to come back to work. They don't want to be in a call center. They want to be a plumber and they can tell the doctor that. That's how you win. See, we have to understand in our industry, they don't know until they know. And they don't know because people haven't educated them in that respect. And so we as an industry need to do a better job. Let's face it. We're not providing them with a physical product. And those that don't understand the risk management world think that, first of all, they're annoyed they have to pay insurance premiums that they hope they'll never use. And second of all, they're saying, what am I getting for this? Well, we're able to educate people. The better producers, the better carriers are able to educate them on what this means for them. There is a ripple effect too for this modified duty, meaningful modified duty. It will take the resistance away from it, but it sends a message to all of the other injured workers or workers who may become injured, this is the expectation now. Not only will you not be sitting home, but we're gonna help you and take care of you along the way. There is meaningful modified duty everywhere, but they don't know until they know. And it's up to us to do a better job as an industry to help them through that. And it's not uncommon for you to come across a, uh, a risk that doesn't have one or only has one on paper because they were told they needed one, but continues to have that resistance because they just don't understand. And that's okay. That's part of the value that we can provide in this industry. Um, the real hope long-term is that is, yes, we want to win, but we also want to change the, the workplace. We want to change the marketplace. We want people to understand that this is really is a, a um, you can tell I, I, you can tell I love this industry. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, the, the, all the behavioral things that go with it. And like you said, people that have lost time claims when they didn't need to be lost time claims. And you set that expectation right up front. Uh, when I spoke with you uh, uh, last week, I shared a personal story about the, the psychosocial and behavioral issues of someone who's off work for a long time and how they become deconditioned from work, if you will. And I'll share it for the audience here today. Um, I had been selling specialty workers comp for a long, long time. And I had been talking about these, why it's good for the injured worker, why uh, the psychosocial benefits for having them back, the potential uh, addiction to opioids and things of that nature. So I'd been doing it for about eight years or so. And then one winter day, we had a big snowstorm here in Colorado. I took my daughter sledding and I hit a tree and I shattered my collarbone. It turned into basically dust. And so I ended up, um, I was in the, you know, something as simple as a broken bone. I actually was in the hospital for three days and I had, had surgery and they replaced my, some other bone and, and I had a titanium plate and screws and the whole bit. Well, you can imagine I wasn't in great shape when I came home. I wasn't going to work for a while and I was taking the opioids that they had prescribed. I can tell you that after a few days, all I wanted to do was shuffle around the house and focus on my pain and just moan and groan. I wanted to flip a channel or I wanted to sit there with my arm in a sling and a mug in my robe, whatever. Um, I felt what I had been selling. 
I felt myself becoming deconditioned from working. I pushed myself through the process because I didn't have somebody managing my claim like a good insurance carrier would. So I started alternating my over my narcotics with over-the-counter meds until I didn't need them very much anymore. That first day I realized this, I called my boss at the time. I said, I'm going to log up on my computer. I'm going to do some work today for as long as I can go. And I only worked for an hour that first day. But David, I will tell you for that first hour, I wasn't focused on my pain. And the next day I worked two, and then I worked four, and then I got in the shower and I actually got dressed and I went into the office, my arm in a sling, and I started working full time and then weed myself off of those, those opioids. Now, it doesn't make me some great guy. It just makes me a guy who knows what happens to people when they're injured. It makes me somebody who had sold it for a long time. So I understood and I pushed myself through it because trust me, I did not want to be working. But I got back in the routine. I was productive again. I actually started healing really quickly when I was no longer moping around and sitting on my couch all day. And so because I had now lived it, I felt a, a renewed energy around how I was talking about injured workers to people. It made a big difference, I think, in how I presented it. And, and certainly from an authenticity perspective, because I had lived it. Yeah, I, I really do love this industry. I think there is, I think over the last 20 years, a lot of insureds have improved their ability in a number of ways around risk management in workers' compensation. But I also know that there is still a very long way to go. And I get back to this other central theme of this discussion, and that is the carrier person who has expertise in something is trying to help their producer be successful. Right. I'm not saying write things at prices you shouldn't write it for. I'm not saying do things that are outside. It's help them be successful. And if you can do that, you're going to win more often. And I tell other people that work with me that I that I develop, that I train, that I lead. You have to remember that producer may be a full on expert in what we're talking about, but they might not because they represent 15 lines of coverage and 20 different carriers. You can't expect them to have that kind of knowledge. So partner with them. Your role is to educate them, to help them win, and then go side by side with them if you can to sit and talk with the, with the customer. And this message can be tailored to a CEO for, of an insured, to a CFO, to an HR director who often makes the purchase decision on the worker's compensation. But it's really back to the customer experience for the agent to be able to help them win and then keep that customer. That's, the, that's critical. I I think that 99% of the topic that we could address in the insurance industry all boil down to education. Every bit of it. And what I mean by that is part of the reason why clients and prospects don't understand how this stuff works because we got a whole bunch of people in our peer group that are pencil whipping their continuing ed and they don't really care about getting to know any more than they already know because they're making decent money doing just what they need to do to get by and they'll continue to go on and skip through the continuing ed that they have and take the final test and get their credit and just go through the motions and keep quoting hoping they win business every single day and then you have people who take their continuing ed seriously and they understand that they need to take that education and figure out a way to distribute that to their clients and prospects 
in a way that they can understand it. Now, some people are going to come back and say, eh, I don't have the time or man, it's really expensive to have to go get a designation and, and miss time from the office and do all of that. Okay, fine. Then why haven't you gone to NCCI and gone through their free workers' compensation educational uh, center? They're, they can get as deep into experience modification rating as you want. They explain how rates are set and you know how uh, aggravated inequities can be filed and all of the stuff that an agent knows that might go through the Institute of Work Comp Professionals, but you can get a subset of that information at no cost on NCCI. The problem is agents don't want to take the time to go yeah. do it. And here's the other thing. It also goes to educating that injured worker and the employer, because in many cases, the overwhelming majority of cases, when somebody is injured on the job and has to file a worker's comp claim, that's the first time that's ever happened to that. They don't oh, know yeah. what's going to happen. And they're injured. It's traumatic. It's traumatic yeah. for them. All they, got they know injured. is I got hurt and how much is this going to cost? And they think about their medical insurance and whether or not they even have any. And is that going to be responsible for this? And the whole time they're sitting here with all these thoughts swirling around their head. And if it, they don't get answered and comforted, they're going home. They're turning on the TV and, and they're calling a lawyer. Any lawyer will be ready to answer those questions for them. So I honestly do think that every single company out there should have an employee's education packet in the event they're injured that says, these are the things that you can expect. We got everything else in there. Why aren't we setting expectations for the most important person in this process, the person who got injured? And so you can set their expectations so they know what they need to expect and you can coach them and make sure that you're checking in with them. And then also you need to coach that employer to have a little bit of empathy because while this person's sitting over here, not knowing what's going to happen and they, you know, may feel bad or guilty, worried they're going to get in trouble, possibly lose their job. They don't know. You've got an employer over here who does not even know how to spell empathy. They, they can't put themselves in that position and try and relate. And it becomes a very adversarial relationship between the employer and the injured worker, because I can't tell you the number of times where I've heard employers talk about people who were injured legitimately at work as if it's a fraudulent case, lock, stock, and barrel. And that's not the case. I am not one of these people who believes every case is fraud. We all know better than to think that. But somehow we don't have the balls to stand up to our employers when they're making remarks like that. And say, no, that's not how it works. You need to understand. Yes. Do I think that the legislative system for workers' compensation is skewed in favor of the injured worker? I absolutely think that. And the reason why is because employers won't do what they need to do to be good, socially responsible uh, citizens of industry and take care of people when they get hurt. That's a whole reason we have workers' comp to begin with. It's never changed. It's just how you describe it. Yes, we have to teach, do a better job of teaching everyone in the process how to take the adversarial nature out of that process. And your commentary here brings me to a theme that my dad taught me when I was young and I teach my kids and it's around competence. And a lot of these agents out there are making good livings and they're simply competent. And my dad told me this and I say it to my daughters who are young adults, whatever industry you're in, if you are competent, you will have a fine life. You will have a fine career. If you are even slightly better than competent, you will crush it out there because there's so much mediocrity. Be better than that. 
And that's kind of how I started my young career and turned it into a great career with real relationships is I wanted to be better than competent. So when I lead teams now on the insurance side and a new submission of any size comes in, I have an expectation that my underwriter contact that producer within 24 hours of receiving that submission and say one of three things. Either one, Mr. Ms. Agent, I got this one. Um, it, it, uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to write it. And here's why. I suggest you look at this company and this company because I've seen their grade on these. Now, I found that most agents don't care that you decline an account as a carrier person. They care when you decline an account as a carrier person. They think they're going to get a quote and last minute they get a declination and they're scrambling. The second thing I have them say is, hey, Mr. Ms. Agent, um, I want you to know I got this submission. It's really important to me. It looks like we have some time. Do you mind if I set it aside because I'm working on a couple other rushes, but I promise you it's important. I'll get to this one shortly. Agent's happy. He knows it's been received. It's important to them. Or three, hey, Mr. Ms. Agent, uh, I got this one. It looks really good. If you can send me this and this and this, I can turn it around really quickly for you. Now, if you can do one of those three things within 24 hours of receiving a submission, that agent's going to now trust you. He knows you care. He knows you give a damn about whether or not they write the business, what kind of service they're getting. And while I think that should be the norm, it's not. It's competence plus more. And that's how you end up going and succeeding in life. You do that extra. And it's that ripple effect then because of that service, because that customer expectation is better, um, they now send you all of their good business to see what you can do on it. There's another piece that's really important here. And I think a lot of carriers miss the boat on. And that is they routinely decline business for time. And I will tell you that is such a massive mistake because if they look at their own data, those that they quote on a rush basis, they probably hit 50%. Mm. And they don't hit 50% on what other things they quote. And I say that it's important. Now, some things you can't. Some things you just have to see with loss prevention ahead of time. It's not always workable. But I tell my agent partners is sometimes your best opportunities come to you last minute because their regular producer did not produce what he should have done there. He's failed them. He's now coming to you to see what you can do. If you trust me with your rush, I'm going to find a way to get it done for you, even if I have to pull in other resources. Now, again, competence would mean, no, I got to have two weeks lead time. I got to have three weeks lead time, 30 days lead time. I'm still going to write my, my fair share. But better than competence, you're going to have success and you're going to have success because you helped that producer win. That's critical to the insurance industry. And I don't think there's enough that really understand that. And frankly, that's kind of where I'm excited to be re-entering this industry is let me lead some people again. Let me develop them. Let me turn them into superstars so that they can crush it. And the company that I end up working for will be able to do the same. Uh, I think this business is fun. I am competitive as the next guy, but this is how you win. I like to win. Well, you know, the thing is, it's not a secret, man. Like, it's not even that hard or difficult. You just have to apply yourself and try a little bit, you know, to understand what the concepts are and then simply put one foot in front of the other and practice delivering that information over and over and over again until you're fluent in it. You didn't go on your first sales call 
able to go off for 10 minutes on return to work. None of us did, no. right? Correct. It's only, That's right. It's you don't, only you don't know until you know. Yeah, it's, it's only because we've lost accounts because we didn't talk about it. And we found out why the other person did, which, you know, that's another good point to bring up. How many producers are actually talking to accounts that chose not to hire you to find out exactly why so you can get better? How many people actually have the guts to pick up the phone or send an email and say, hey, look, not trying to do anything shady or, or uh, you know, offsides here. I truly want to understand. I felt like we had a good solution for you, but you chose to go another direction. What led you to make that change so I can make sure that I don't make that same mistake again? I don't know of a single person out there that if you sent them an email saying, hey, look, just hoping you could help me real quick, just quick answer to a question. How many people are not going to do that? I bet you 75% of the people will. Yeah. So so you're in sales. I'm in sales. Your listeners are in sales. Um, it is imperative that, look, you haven't heard an objection until you've heard that objection. But once you've heard that objection, you better have developed a response for that objection so that when it comes up again, you now know what you're doing. And maybe your response isn't good enough of what you what you're able how you're able to reply. Well, then go back to your organization and figure out a way to make it better so that you can respond to that objection. And everywhere I've been, I've had every one of my salespeople out in the field bring back a list of objections that they haven't heard before. Let's consolidate that everywhere so that we know how to address it and we either can address it or we better fix something internally. And part of that objection is not getting the business. It's being told you didn't win. Well, if you don't go back and find out what the objection was or why, just like you stated, what a colossal mistake. It's a missed opportunity for the next one. And you don't need practice quoting. I don't need practice quoting. That's not the fun part of this business, right? I don't want to be one of 10 quoting on a piece of business every time it comes out because I've provided nothing of value to that agent. That's not going to win long term, right? It just isn't a winning strategy. And that's when this business becomes laborious. It's not fun at that point. No, and you just continue to compound pressure on yourself for lack of production. Of Right. But here's the thing. I think the other thing that I hear a lot is, well, yeah, you can go out and write workers comp because you have all the tools that you need. You have mod advisor, you have mineral and KPA, you have this, you have that. Let me be very, very clear to everybody listening to this podcast. I need two things to be able to write workers comp, a pencil and a calculator. And it's only because I don't want to have to do the math longhand, but I could if I wanted. I am willing to bet that if for all the people that are out there complaining about what you don't have, if you took a day and you just walked around and you asked people for permission to look at their mod worksheet and tell them what you see, and all you do is divide the stabilizing value by box K to determine the minimum mod and show them what that is relative to where they're at right now, you will win business just by doing that. And you don't have to have fancy software. You don't have to have the treatment plan. You will at some point, but you don't have to have it up front to win the business. And, you know, again, it's just you have to want to do it, people. Not everything is an inbound lead. I think that's the other thing. We get we got too soft during COVID. People didn't go out and cold call anymore. They got used to the phone ringing or email coming in or, you know, just talking to people over Zoom. What the reality is, if you just did that, I would challenge anybody to take six months and just go door to door in industrial parks following that strategy, I bet you write more workers' comp than you've written in your career. 
beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because well, what I know, 90% of y'all didn't even know you could divide the stabilizing value by box K to get the minimum mod on the work. Yeah, right. Um, I would encourage producers to, even after they write an account and they talk to the upper management and maybe they've even walked the floor, travel there and walk through with the loss prevention representative when they go so you can see it through their eyes. You can ask that technical question that may not jump out at you, but is going to jump out at them. And look, I don't expect producers to go out on every loss prevention. Oh, I do. They've got a job to do. No, I do. I, uh, I, in fact, I encourage it because here's the deal. This is my philosophy, completely made up terms. I don't know if they exist or not, but I think I, I made them up. There's a difference between functional risk management and tactical risk management. Functional risk management okay. is what you and I can do as producers just walking around noticing things. Tactical risk management is I need an ergonomist or an industrial hygienist to come in and do this. There's no way I can do it myself. But there's not a sure. producer out there that's not capable of looking at a fire extinguisher to see if it has been inspected. They, there's not a producer out there that's not capable of looking at an emergency exit sign to make sure that it's lit and make sure that the door's not blocked. And if they really want to get bonus points, take their pen and push it in the testing to make sure the emergency lighting comes on, you're going to blow their mind. Not a producer out there that can't look at the floor to make sure that there's not hoses and cords laying there when they could be on retractable reels mounted to the ceiling. Not a producer out there that can't go look at the baler to make sure that there's a, a I, I can keep going for days. But yeah, the point right. that I'm making here to everybody listening to this is the reason I know that stuff is because I went to every loss control visit and I still go to every loss control visit. You're not well, good doing for you. it for yourself. You're doing it for your client because they need you to be there to be their advocate. You're not trying to grease the inspector. You're not trying to hide anything. You're trying to learn so that you can get better so that your next loss control visit, because of your proactive tactics, is going to make it a lot better experience than the one you're on now. And you only have to go on a few bad ones before you start understanding pretty quickly why you're losing business and why your loss ratio is jacked up and why it's so hard for you to go out and get a new account. Well, here's what I love about that too, because loss prevention engineers often make recommendations that cost money. And when they make that recommendation, the insured can receive that as though the insurance company wants me to do this to save them some money or claims. If the producer is going along with two, that voice is received in a different way than it would be if the loss prevention engineer in the report says you need to buy retractable whatevers, because you're going to be out there saying this is going to make your place safer, right? This cost, the value is worth the cost. Now, sometimes it actually isn't. There can be, you have, they're saying you have to re-engineer your whole whatever. It's just not plausible. But you as the producer going on these visits and being able to then filter that through your knowledge, you will be much more likely to have that message received by the insured and willing to then cut the check to do those improvements. So I think that's a great thing that you do. It really is. And I will I will tell you the other thing that we do that helps us is we do we do a baseline risk assessment on every middle market account before we ever even go to market. So we're going to know everything that we need to know, or at least as much of it as we possibly can. And if we need to use third party loss control, we'll contract with Yellowbird to bring somebody out that's an expert in that industry and let them do the baseline. But when we do that, we do a couple of things that I think are really important steps. The first one is um, I interview the leadership, the executive team, I interview the middle and I interview a couple of hourly people. And the reason, and, and I give them the exact same evaluation form with an explanation of what needs to be evaluated that that 
loss control person is using. And the reason I do that is because if I'm going to have to deliver a tough message to somebody on the condition of their account, I need to know how they perceive their account before I tell them how I perceive their account. If I can get a good understanding of what executive leadership thinks and they feel that they're an eight out of 10 and we're getting ready to go in and announce that we're giving them a four out of 10, that's a big problem that I'm going to have to overcome at the point of sale. And I'm going to have to soften my messaging in a way, or at least ask my questions in such a way that I can lead them to the conclusion I need them to come to so they can start moving over to my side. Too many times we get things like this and we either walk away because we don't want to take the time to fix it and help people, or we're just gunslingers and we tell them everything that's wrong and we can't represent them until they fix it. That's not what people are looking for. Most of the time, these companies are in the condition they're in is because nobody qualified has ever taken the time to tell them that they're in bad condition. They don't get it. They just know costs are going up. They know money's leaking from their financial statements and they, they don't, they, they need a bandaid or a tourniquet or God knows what, but at the end of the day, know what's going on because you know, who knows what's happening in that account, the underwriter, before they ever get the submission, they know exactly what's happening. And if you can go in and demonstrate to them that you're being transparent and that you also know exactly what's happening, even if the mod's a 2.23, you're going to get the account placed because they're going to have trust that you're going to do it. So what we started doing is videotaping the baseline risk assessment. We want them to see everything that we see the first time we walk in, no holds barred. And then we'll get a head start because we've usually got several months before we have to go to market. And we're going to go back and videotape to show them the progress. Here's what it looked like. Here's what it looks like. These are the things that we still know that we need to get done. How easy is it for an underwriter to make a decision? It's not about the payrolls and the class codes or the loss runs. Certainly the loss runs are important, but if you can fill in the blanks and let them actually see what those loss runs are saying instead of just giving them the loss runs and making them visualize the conditions in their facilities, you have a home run in a long-term relationship that'll never be broken with underwriting too. That's right. You've shown them you're not hiding anything. And because you've shown them that and you're transparent, it allows that underwriter then to ask you questions more along the lines of underwriting the insured, as opposed to just underwriting the the physical environment. And when you can underwrite the insured and get that comfort level that things are going to improve, then yes. And then they do. You get that long-term relationship that you talked about. That trust works both ways. I think um, look, these kind of conversations are a blast for me because this industry is fun. You can win by being competent, but what does win look like? It means you wrote an account. And then how long do you have that account? You don't have them for very many renewal cycles because somebody's going to come in and do the extra. And so let's be better than competent. Let's be good at what we do out there. Let's help these insureds lower their losses, lower their costs, create a better environment for their injured workers. Then when they get injured, let's make sure we take care of them so they don't want to go elsewhere. Save you the cost of turnover. 100%. Well, listen, man, we've we've been going about an hour, so I want to go ahead and wrap up. Um, Listen, everybody, this guy's a wealth of knowledge, but I think the funny, the the coolest part about it is he's on the market right now. If you're Ah. a carrier, if you're a wholesaler, if you're a large agency that's looking to bring somebody in to teach workers comp and help your agents get better and lead that team. It doesn't matter. You should reach out to Doug as quick as you can. There's no chance he's on the market for a second longer than he should be. So I really hope that somebody that's listening to this isn't too late when they finally decide to reach out and have a conversation 
because you would be an asset to any organization that you wow. end up at. And it's much appreciated that you would take Thank time you, out of your podcast to come or your day to come on the podcast and have a conversation with me. And I know that there are a lot of people that are going to probably were feverishly writing down as you were talking. So go back and listen to it again, or quit listening to it on 1.5 or two times, and you'll be able to keep up with the notes. But all that being said, I'm going to let you wrap it up. How do they get a hold of you if they need to reach out? David, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on with you. Um, you can tell I love this business. I know you love this business. And uh, our job is to make everybody around us better. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I am on LinkedIn. Again, my name is Doug Avrin, spelling A-V-R-I-N. And you can also reach me. Uh, I'm easily, I reply to every text, every phone call, every email. Doug Avrin at gmail.com or 303-887-5082. And for what it's worth, I am also mobile. The Ravishing Mrs. Avrin and I have decided we'll move to wherever the good opportunity is. So thank you again for the opportunity to talk to you today and to your listeners. Really appreciate your time. And if you're a wise man, you will keep the Ravishing Ms. Avrin very happy. So you got that. find right. a good spot for it. Listen, thanks again, Doug. We're going to wrap up now. Everybody, hope you learned a lot on this one. I know that I learned when I talked to Doug last week and again this week, and his experience is absolutely invaluable. So I'm so glad that Eric and Sean decided to connect this. Have a great week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>